The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with a, a good friend of mine, a friend that makes me think and look at things in new ways. And uh, we were having such a wonderful conversation uh, right before the show started that we almost uh, missed our cue. But And I hope that some of that uh, energy and excitement will continue on as, as we now include you in our conversation. Uh, so I'm talking today with my friend Andrea Jones. I'm going to let her do her uh, full introduction as I uh, do with all of my guests. But today the topic is uh, immersive learning and with perhaps a focus on history sites, but as you will be able to tell, uh, it is really looking at learning in all aspects, all areas. Uh, we sometimes call that uh, multidisciplinary, but I think that that's perhaps a hackneyed word. Uh, so without further ado, Andrea, welcome to the show today. It's great to be with you. Um, long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. Well, no, I appreciate it, and you have been really supportive about the show over the years and given me great, great ideas and steered some other guests my way, so it is time to have you on the show. Uh, so, as I do with all of my guests, you know, I ask you to share your career path in your own words and highlight those experiences that have really, in this case, shaped your thinking about the role of museums in education. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite parts of your show, so I'm uh, excited to tell my story. I think it helps um, to see where people have come from. Um, I'm actually going to start with myself as a learner, um, as a child, because I think that has a lot to do with my viewpoint now. Um, I think, uh, you know, most kids start off in this world full of wonder and curiosity, and I was one of those, and I um, had great parents that really um, encouraged me to be creative and think outside the box. And somewhere along the line in my public school education, I think that got lost. And by the time I graduated high school, I kind of was frustrated because I was asking these questions to the teachers about, you know, why does this matter? Um, 
what, you know, what does this subject have to do with me? Why do I need to learn this? And I don't think that people had a, a great answer for me. Uh, I had really great teachers, really um, kind people, but you know, I just never got that answer. So as I graduated college, um, I, I kind of was lost for a little while. And eventually um, kind of rediscovered the spark for learning um, in my late 20s and decided to go into education um, as a classroom teacher and kind of with the goal of, you know, correcting the wrongs that sort of had, had fallen on me. So to inspire learners to make learning fun and relevant and all those things. And so that was a great experience for seven years. Um, but... I think it didn't take long before um, I was a little bit frustrated with the confines of uh, formal education and decided to um, try my hand at informal education in the museum world where I was so thrilled. Um, I started to uh, do some work with the Atlanta History Center and got this great opportunity to work with uh, Catherine Hughes, who you've had on your show. Oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah, um, she's like kind of the museum guru, uh, museum theater guru, so I got a lot of um, great inspiration from her. Um, and, you know, the opportunities um, that were given me were really amazing to redesign all of the school programs that, well, with, with the exception of the farm program there um, at the History Center. Um, then, to cap it off... Um, my partner and I moved to the D.C. area because um, she got a job at Gallaudet University. So, you know, you do the spousal thing and you move across the country. Um, so I found myself without a job and eventually found one at Akakeek Foundation um, in uh, southern Prince George's County in Maryland. And that has been a really great growth experience, too, because um, this is a place that is very interdisciplinary. Um, there's, I had to do a lot of learning about agriculture and the environment, you know, sustainability, uh, along with a whole new era of history, which is uh, colonial history. So I guess that brings us up to the present. That's that's great, Andrea. Uh, and I, yes, you and I have talked, and I knew a little bit of about that story, but I think that it's... Uh, is really important uh, to understand that I don't think you are alone in being a student that gets turned off by formal education. In fact, when mm -hmm. my son was when my son was going to school, um, he had uh, a, a mild learning disability, and you know he's really sh really sharp, really smart, but just became more and more ground down by the you know the the uh, the requirements of school that he didn't see had any connection to the requirements of life. And I once had a school counselor say that, that my role as a, as a mother and as a teacher was to get him through high school without doing any further damage to his creativity. And mm -hmm. I, can't, <laughs> I can't say that I was 100% <laughs> successful, but now at 25, I think he's recovered well enough that he's, he's well on his way. So, and I, and I bring that up not just for the personal story, but to say that that is also a place that I think museums play a critical role, is to yes. reach out to those 
those learners who just can't flourish in uh, the traditional yes. classroom, even if it's they can't flourish because they simply can't sit still for that long and how wonderful it is to be able to get up and walk around and, and, and do activities. So, Yeah, the fact that you said that your, your, your son needed to recover from his education is telling. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I think we all sort of, do that a little bit. I don't know. I think the museum field, though, tends to be filled with, um, I guess, your, your um, overachievers, you know, <laughs> um, people who, you know, school came easy to. And uh, although I got the grades that I needed to get, I was uh, a perfect example of one of those students that just didn't get, didn't get why we were there, had a little bit of a bad attitude. And I think I design programs for myself. You know, oh, that's for, that's that's interesting. <laughs> you know, so, for all those kids that are, you know, the ones who don't quite get why they need to know this or uh, question, you know, why they need to sit in this chair and listen to this guy talk forever. Right, right. So I think that's a perfect <laughs> no. That's a perfect segue uh, into our into our discussion today. And I titled this program "Immersive Learning" because it's a term that you you use in describing your approach to uh, uh, museum uh, education. So, what do you mean by immersive learning experiences? Yeah, that's a, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot uh, recently, um, especially with the advent of virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, everybody's talking about being immersed. And, um, you know, I guess the easiest way to describe it is that when you are um, in an immersive experience, you feel like you're actually there. You know, you are, you're not just... Um, there, you are there in your imagination, but there's a lot there that's helping you get to the place of imagining um, being in someone else's shoes or um, traversing a different um, path, whether it's, you know, pretending to be in the Civil War or pretending that you're underneath, uh, the, in, inside the soil, you know, looking at bacteria um, from the point of view of a mole, um, there's lots of ways to do it. You can create immersive environments, um, and a lot of exhibits do this. Um, what I specialize in is more of the programming angle, although I have um, really been intrigued with immersive um, built environments as well because I think, you know, you really need both. Um, and I've done a lot of set building just to make my programs happen. So I keep, you know, wanting to build things um, to make it more real. Um, but my, mine's a very low-tech sort of um, uh, angle. So I use museum theater. Um, I put people in roles, um, and there's a story. You know, people are involved in um, becoming part of a story. Um, is that, does that clarify it enough? It, do, it, it, it does. Um, it does. Uh, if I could say it, it, it puts people into the role of participant within, and, and that, per, that participation is made stronger by being in a real place. Right. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we, when we collect um, artifacts to put in museums, they are taken out of the context from which they came. 
you know, they're, they're, you know, maybe there's a, a vase, but it's now in a case and it's not, it's away from the things that made it meaningful. So this is kind of like, you know, recreating the meaning around if it's about objects, um, but also without objects too. So I don't, we can get into that too. Right, right. So um, I guess the the next follow up question is why you why focus on this kind of learning, this kind of immersive learning, as opposed to oh I don't know other activities, tours, presentations. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Why have you really come to to this uh, aspect of it? Yeah. Well, actually, I think it's kind of like um, you know, an artist who wants to um, ha- has an idea in their mind and wants to get to this big idea, but it's what tool you use. You know, paint or sculpture or uh, immersive learning is just the tool. It's the tool that I use to get to, and what my main goal is is relevance. Um, I want the participants to feel like they are learning something that matters. And so um, I think, you know, by virtue of it being so personal, um, that's one way that it really connects to you. Um, It connects to to people and makes it more relevant. But also designing immersive learning um, experiences around big ideas and questions um, that do matter um, to our human experience uh, also helps. So in other words, you wouldn't want to just do immersive learning just to do it because it's fun. You want to do it because it helps you to um, answer a question, for example. So like one of my programs, the, the question that we wanted to ask is, you know, during the civil rights movement, um, would you have had what it takes to be a freedom fighter? You know, and I, I asked that question when I, when I was studying the civil rights movement. I thought, would I have had the guts to stand up for what was right at, you know, during this time? Well, what, you know, what better way to find out than to put yourself in a situation that recreates some of those, um, those factors and and situations? So, um, in that case. Immersive learning is a really great tool for that. Um, it's, a gr- it's a great tool if you want to, um, for example, get to skill building, you know, because you're, you're making decisions and you're interacting in an environment um, and you are, uh, you know, you're forced to use critical thinking skills and you're forced to um, react, you know, in real time and uh, weigh different consequences um, it also is a great tool for um, for fostering empathy. It's a great tool for fostering empathy. Um, you know, to know what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. Um, so, but all of this, you know, gets at these big questions. Um, and in the end, you want to know something, um, and you're there in this environment to find it out. Um, right. But they have to be really big things, you know. So this was uh, uh, the program that you were just discussing. This was one that you developed at the Atlanta History Center. So, of course, that would have made uh, perfect sense. Uh, what right. uh, d- Now, 
how so how how did you put uh, participants in in that? How did you immerse them? I guess is is my question yeah. to you know to, to to use the word of the morning. Uh, how, yeah, I mean so. It's one thing to ask that question of an adult. Uh, it's another to perhaps ask it for the first time of a of a of yeah. a younger person and uh, within the context of the museum. So how did how did you pull that off? Yeah, well, that was a, it was a grand everything that I everything that I design is a grand experiment. Um, we decided to do three different simulations, um, and I use that word a lot too, simulation, because it's. You know, it's kind of, you know, a recreation of, um, it's like, you know, flight simulators or any other thing where you're trying to see how you'd react in a certain situation. Um, there, the three simulations that we did were, we were, I was trying to find events in the civil rights movement, especially pertaining to Atlanta, um, that could be easily done in a simulation and then also were kind of flashpoints in in kind of spurring the movement forward and showing different kinds of, um, in, this, in this case, nonviolent protests. So we did um, a voting, um, voting uh, registration simulation. We did a uh, freedom ride, um, and we did um, a lunch counter sit-in. And in each one of those, we had to do very different things to make immersive environments because, you know, you have to work with what you have in your museum. <laughs> um, the most immersive one is the lunch counter sit-in because at the time um, the Atlanta History Center had this really cool, like, sort of 50s-looking cafe, and we would just take over the cafe for the program, and, and it looked exactly like um, one of the, you know, an immersive environment because it was built that way. Um, the Freedom Ride simulation was completely fabricated. Um, we we built a a bus out of um, basically out of plywood and painted the facade of it, and then just put regular classroom chairs inside of it, and used a PowerPoint presentation that was timed with a remote control to uh, simulate the windshields that you'd be looking through, mm. um, and the voice of the of a bus driver. So those are some of the, the nuts and bolts of it, but um, there's a lot more to, you know, designing the program, and I think you're, maybe you're alluding to how do you get kids to uh, pretend to be adult civil rights protesters? Yes, but, <laughs> at, yeah. well, yes, and but before I'm, I'm going to ask you to answer that uh, question, uh, we're going to have to take our first break, uh, okay. and when we come back, you can answer that question and more about uh, immersive learning experiences, uh, and what I love about them, too, is that they are not the most high-tech thing imaginable, uh, and that, I think, also shows to your creativity and how lots of museums can apply these, these approaches. So stay tuned. We will be right back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm here with Andrea Jones, and we are talking about immersive learning. And right before we went on break, Andrea was sharing with us uh, some of the the techniques she used to create an environment uh, where at the Atlantic History Center where students would have to think about uh, what if they had been in a situation to choose to protest at a uh, at at uh, a whites only lunch counter or if they were in a situation where they had an opportunity to get on a uh, a freedom bus and be a member of the Freedom Riders uh, in the South. Uh, would they do it? What would that be like? And my my question right before break was, uh, you know, all right. So she talked about some of the physical ways you can create a bus out of plywood, and you could put chairs there, and you can use uh, a, a little bit of a simulation. This is all sort of low tech. But how do you really get kids? into that moment, you know, to really move them past, oh, this is just a simulation, it's sort of like school, into, oh, I really am putting myself in that situation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and I think about it all the time, about um, how to make it real, and then how real to make it, you know, because I think um, it can be too real, you know, so, uh, well, first of all, um, the use of theater is amazing, um, and this is something that, um, you know, I've always been kind of a dramatic person anyway, <laughs> but um, I think when I realized that I was theatrical was when I um, started working for Catherine Hughes, and, you know, I had been doing all these things in my, in my classroom 
to pretend, you know, to be a certain place or to simulate things. And she's like, you know what you're doing is theater. I'm like, oh. Um, But basically, you know, acting like something is happening, it's contagious. You know, so we, if you train your, so, I mean, part of this is, is hiring people who can, who can do this, who can engage people and not necessarily um, history experts or people with um, history degrees or science degrees or whatever um, your museum is. It's about hiring people that, um, you know, like their, their food in life is getting reactions from people, is, is getting that engagement. And so, you know, for example, in the Freedom Ride simulation, even though it's just a plywood bus, um, and it's a PowerPoint presentation. Um, there is an actor who is playing the part of, um, you know, a Freedom Ride leader, and he is explaining to them what is happening at all the time. You know, he's he's uh, he or she, you know, we have a, a male character for this particular part, um, but he's telling the kids that oh, we're passing Asheville, we're passing. Oh, look out the window! Do you see? And all the kids will look out this fake window and see nothing but a classroom. <laughs> but they're, they're actually, what they're pretending to see are people greeting them at the bus stop or uh, angry people with clubs or, you know, whatever stop is happening. Um, you know, so it's all happening in their minds and it's happening because, because of theater and because they're immersed in a story. Um, and when we have moments where there's danger, you know, and we tell you know, tell the kids how to protect themselves by putting their hands over their um, neck and crouching down and all that kind of thing. And when these explosions go off um, because of just the sound design, these kids are all down on the ground. And they are, you know, the the bus, you know, it, it catches on fire eventually and they have to crawl out of the bus. And meanwhile, you know, it's all just, Still, it's just a it's just a classroom. So, theater is amazing. Um, I also think, though, that you have to really be careful with this medium because it's a really powerful um, tool to have at your disposal. Um, there is some really great research by um, a couple of researchers in Britain, Jenny Kidd and Anthony Jackson, have done this study that I really I refer to a lot. Um, where they talk about something called empathy paradox. I don't know if you've ever ter- have you heard of that term? No, I haven't. So empathy paradox is it happens when you experience something that seems very real to you, and because of that, you think that that is exactly how it was. You know, so um, there is one version, and you know. So in other words, these kids would be going, "Oh, I know what it was like to be a freedom writer." And somebody who had actually been a freedom rider would be like, man, you have no idea. Like, <laughs> you know, it was much worse than this little thing you just did. And um, you're disrespecting it by pretending like you know what it was like, you know. And so I think that's where I feel like sometimes it's good not to be so real. You know, you, you recreate um, a situation with enough, you know, reality to make it, um, you know, to, to give you a sort of a key to unlock this door. Um, 
maybe like like you're looking through the blinds, you know, if you've got those like um, horizontal blinds and you're kind of looking through at reality, but you still know that the blinds are there. Um, mm. You know, and another thing that I really um, believe in is incorporating multiple perspectives in a simulation because you've got to, that's another thing that helps break down the empathy paradox is, you know, you've got to show that there's more than one reality there, you know, that, and so, you know, like, for example, in this simulation, we have um, people who are pretending to be white bus riders, people who are pretending to be black bus riders. Um, We also have the perspective of Thurgood Marshall in there, who's telling that, you know, he doesn't come (laughs) on the freedom ride, but... um, you know, they get word that he is not, he does not approve of what they're doing. And, you know, Thurgood Marshall is like a hero. Um, but he just didn't like this method. He believed in using the court systems rather than, you know, direct action like this. Um, so making it messy, making it really messy. And then, and then at the end, and I cannot emphasize this enough, you have to debrief with the participants because, whatever they have pretended to go through, you need to kind of bring them back to the reality of, you know, like at the end we show them pictures of the actual Freedom Riders, of their injuries, of the burning bus, and that is really where I feel like the intense learning happens. You know, where they're like, oh, wow, you know, that happened. And, but it's so much, I mean, it's, it's so much richer because of the experience they went through. They, um, you know, we could have showed them that footage at first and they would have been like, oh, poor guys, you know, like, you know, sucks to be them, you know. Right. Uh, but when they have experienced it, they really feel it. You know, they feel that empathy. Um, they feel the sacrifice that these people must have gone through um, and the decisions, you know, at the end of... The, uh, for example, one of, at the end of the simulation, we asked the kids, um, you know, okay, so it looks like a bunch of you are hurt. You know, I see you're, you had some trouble, you know, getting to your chair, and you don't look so great. You over there, you don't, are you okay? You know, well, the ambulance is here, um, but good news, bad news, um, the ambulance will only take white people. So would you white people like to go um, get some medical treatment? But you can't, you know, bring the rest of your Freedom Ride team with you. What do you, you know? And so they have to decide, um, you know, those decisions are, are, you know, when you zoom in, and that's something that actually happened um, in Anniston where they, you know, the ambulance came after a while and they would only take white passengers or white um Freedom Riders, and so, and none of them went. None of them went on the ambulance in real life. Um, but you know, you can see how tempting that would be. You know, so simulations are really great at you know if you you have to study the minute details of a situation, and and really make it. Those are the things that really make it rich and come to life. Yeah, I see so many. Uh both tips, uh, and I really understand now what what you're saying by you know you want to make it real but not too real. But I'm I'm thinking back on some of the um, you know well uh, you know 
my my uh, bread and butter where I I'm a uh, where I make my living as a as a consultant and interpretive planner or in d- developing exhibitions and while they can be fabulous uh, in creating that kind of immersive environment one of the strengths of adding a program to it or developing a program uh, even without you know really expensive equipment is to have that uh, that leadership and also mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. opportunity for the uh, uh, for the the participants to debrief and talk with each other and really put into words and underst- and try to make sense of their feelings and their experience before they leave the uh, you know the the museum and I think that right. that's one of the real that's the piece that I think often we miss in creating yeah. immersive exhibitions is that sometimes you know they are completely powerful and they make perfect sense uh, to you know, sort of get you into that role so that that you can really appreciate the other objects and the artifacts and the story that's being told but I have always been a strong believer in having that kind of facilitated experience even for uh, general audiences and families uh, to help yeah. them understand. Other than, other than that, you know, then they say, well, this was another bad news experience and it really was awful in that time. Thank God I'm not living in a time right. like that until they think, oh, we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and you got to keep that debrief sticking with the times, you know, um, you know, let it, let it have to do with today because that's makes it more relevant too. Right. Um, right. So yeah. let's, let's switch gears a little bit uh, because I, you know, the hour goes very, very quickly and I did, and I did want to say, cause of you were too modest that <laughs> Andrea was a recent recipient of the 2016 innovation and museum education award that was given by the American Alliance of Museums. And there are, a number of uh, these innovation awards given each year in different categories, innovations in writing, innovations in exhibition, innovations in multimedia. This, if I'm correct, Andrea, this was the very first Innovation in Museum Education Award. Is this it was. I, that's, what, that's what I understand. So, con- so congratulations on that. And so I want to talk about that program a little bit. It is that... You know where you were distinguished. It is called Eco Explorers, and you uh, developed it at uh, Acetique. Yes, and um, I have to give credit to the whole team um, at Acetique Foundation, not only because um, you know we have uh, an executive director who bought into the whole crazy scheme, um, even when I said. Uh, it's probably going to result in a few people quitting their jobs <laughs> um, just because of the format change and the topic change that we were, it was part of a, you know, a larger change effort. And she's, you know, she fully backed that, um, you know, to all of the people who helped with the brainstorming and, and the people and, and really honestly, the, um, the museum interpreters who make this program come to life every day. So it's, it's a lot, but um, it was a great... It's, I'll tell you a little bit about the program. 
Um, it's called Ego Explorers Colonial Time Warp, and it is the first simulation that I or that I've designed that is completely hypothetical. You know, so it's not based on a historical event. Um, it's based on a what if scenario. Um, and it's also the first one that I've designed that is completely interdisciplinary because we are um, marrying history, colonial history, with environmental sustainability. And doing that, you know, kind of not in a separate way, but in a way that depends on each other. So the, the program goes like this. Um, the kids come in. They are told that they are um, going to go back in time to uh, visit a colonial family that, and we're, you know, we're going to learn from them about how um, they live without some of the modern um, conveniences that we have today um, that, that harm the environment. Um, you know, things, we don't know what we're going to, you know, what we're going to see, but we're going to go looking. And then in true, you know, in a good storytelling fashion, something happens. So somebody runs into the room and explains that there is a crisis. And the crisis is that uh, another time traveler has gone back to 1770 and has placed modern objects all around the farm um, and, you know, to help the people who live there uh, to live more comfortably. And that's great. But the problem is that a lot of these items could start environmental effects um, 250 years before they're supposed to happen. Um, and so we have to go back to the past, the eco-explorers go back to the past to find these objects and to see, you know, depending on what's left uh, out there, if these objects are actually harmful enough to um, take back with us to the future. And if they feel like they are harmful, then they have to leave a colonial um, type object that does the same job in its place. Um, so they go out there with this mission and they find things like toilet paper. <laughs> this is one of my favorite ones, by the way. Um, because it's, it's something that we, uh, we just think is a necessity, right? I mean, Carol, you think it's a necessity. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, no everybody question. can't imagine their lives without toilet paper. Um, but it's something that colonial people would have laughed about. You know, this is an invented um, product it's a waste of paper. One out of every seven trees is flushed down the toilet to make toilet paper today. So crazy amounts of trees. Um, so they find things like that. Um, by the way, Carol, do you know what the colonial equivalent to toilet paper would be? I was afraid to ask, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> well, pretty much anything they could find, but as you can imagine. But um, the corn cob is one of the things that we pull out. You know, um, I'd, I'd heard that, and I, and I so hoped it was a myth, but I guess it's not. <laughs> I think it depends on, you know, your environment and, and if you actually grew corn. But, um, yeah, actually, uh, you know, you can have soak it in water. And I, I don't want to get into the details, but anyway. Yeah, um, probably not. <laughs> the kids love that, though. Um, the, they also run into these characters. And here's where, you know, not only is the... Um, you know, they have a captain that guides them through this process. And the captain is always pretending to be kind of in the moment, like, let's see what's over here. Should we investigate the house? Should we go to the barn? Um, but they also run into these characters um, that surprise them. You know, so 
for example, they run into Hank. Um, Hank is, is actually the, the sort of well-meaning villain of the story, and he, um, he's the guy who placed all the items around the farm to begin with. And um, so they kind of catch him in the act of placing a self-generating flashlight in the house. And the reason we put that character there was to kind of play devil's advocate um, about, you know, like, you know, we all like electricity. Um, that's the point of the flashlight. Um, and, you know, don't try to be too do-goodery out here and just take away all the things because you know you like them, you know, and talks about all the good things that electricity does with the Doppler radar and, um, you know, defibrillators and things like that. Um, so the kids get into these kind of arguments with, with Hank. Um, they like him and then they don't like him and it, it causes them to get um, pretty flustered. Another character that they run into is um, an enslaved character. So our, our fictional family out there um, uh, owns slaves, or actually one slave um, named Kate, and she has already discovered one of the items. Um, that item is pesticide. And since her job is uh, very much agricultural, she um, thinks that if something could kill bugs, then it would really help out her her life. And she talks about, you know, maybe having time to go see her son who's been sold away to another farm. Um, and meanwhile, the kids have been debriefed that this uh, pesticide has massive effects on the environment, the soil, um, everything from birds, eggs, to worms, to bees. Um, so they're weighing kind of like the greater good with an individual plight. And I think that's really what we do every, every day. You know, yes. we always think, well, it's just us, you know? Right. No, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely, that I, that just shows the richness of this approach. I'm going to have to cut you off. We have to take our second break so we can come right back and we can talk about how uh, we can expand this, uh, this immersive experience approach uh, more broadly. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn 
or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm here talking with Andrea Jones about some of the fabulously creative, uh, innovative programs that she has developed uh, that she uses the term immersive learning experiences. And I am sure if you've been listening to the show from the beginning or even turned in halfway, you will agree with me that Andrea is the ultimate uh, creative thinker in uh, using the materials at hand. It doesn't, you know, she, she isn't waiting four years to develop a capital campaign uh, to bring virtual reality to her institution. She's thinking of, of ways uh, that that with the materials at hand that she can achieve her goals and I'm sure that Andrea would be very pleased to share some of her ideas with you and I and I understand and Andrea that you do a little freelance work on the side so that might be something for yeah. uh, people to uh, connect with you after the show uh, because I think you could really add a lot to a number of museums who you know you just you need a fresh eye perhaps to look at the assets available and and have someone you know, sort of spark some ideas. Yes, yes. I um, actually just recently um, started blogging um, at uh, peakexperiencelab.com. Um, that's a peak experience is kind of my word for you know what makes a transformative learning experience, and some of those are immersive. But I like to. Um, get into a lot of those topics as well as um, all of the, the different ingredients that, that make, this, make the magic happen. Great, great. Well, that'll be a wonderful resource uh, for many of us. So in the last uh, you know, remaining few minutes, I, I know that one thing that you said at the beginning that is just so important to you is to judge your programs to make sure that they are relevant. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unfortunately, relevant is also one of those words. Uh, I have a yeah. whole list now of, of uh, wimpy words. And, yeah, uh, you know, know. <laughs> uh, so this is just yet another one. But, we can uh, play but, buzzword bingo one of these days, Carol. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Uh, <laughs> Ed, Rod- Ed Rodley, if you're listening, we'll let you play along too. You'd probably, you know, sweep the board. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so how do you define that, you know, how do you judge then the, the relevancy or, or how well you've hit that relevancy goal uh, yeah. with your programs? But, um, it's, I mean, I think anything that's relevant is just something that matters to you. And um, I, I don't know if you've read um, Nina Simon's most recent book, The Art of Relevance, but it is, I think, a really great um, 
um, piece of work because she talks about um, the cognitive science behind what makes something relevant. And it turns out to be kind of two factors. One, um, so when you're judging whether you're going to participate in something, you're looking at, um, is it likely to stimulate new thinking in me, you know, or, or a meaningful experience, a memorable experience? And then, so you're judging, yeah, do, does it look like that's going to happen? Um, and then second, does it take a lot of effort to, to, to get there to do it, right? Or once you get there, does it seem, you know, too hard to do? So um, she uses the example about going to the movies. You know, you read the reviews, and if they're all really glowing reviews and they seem like something that really matters to you, um, you're like, okay, let's. The, this is the movie I want to see. Um, but then, is it at the time that you want? Is it across town? Um, you know, is it um, like, let's say, you know, you're hearing impaired and they don't have, um, you know, captioning or s- devices that help you. You know, all that kind of stuff. So I think museums need to think that way too. And I think. Um, immersive, immersive learning, it really does do a good job of kind of bridging that gap, you know, what you're doing when you're, um, you know, relevance is kind of the, you know, connecting something old, something familiar with something brand new. You know, you, you want to push people past what they already know, but you need to put it in a package that looks familiar to them. And so I think immersive learning is great for that. Um, and I highly recommend uh, the book, too. Um, but, you know, there's another thing, too. I, along with relevance comes, you know, you mentioned sustainability of museums. And I think we're in a really big change um, at, at the moment, like a flashpoint, maybe, in museum history. Do you feel that way? I do. I do. I, you know, you've had a longer career, and I, I always want, I like to ask Thanks, people Andrea. that question. <laughs> well, it's an advantage, I think, um, to see the trajectory of this museum history play out because um, I, I really feel like um, people are looking less for information these days than they are in experience. You know, they can get information on their phones. They can get information you know, on the internet, wherever they, it's on, on demand. Um, so, and, you know, you mentioned virtual reality. I mean, we can put goggles on and see um, the great pyramids of Egypt. Um, but what can we get at a museum that we can't get in our goggles? And what can we get at a museum that's going to surprise us and, you know, strike and um, connect with our emotions and make us, you know, give, give us a path to being better people. Um, and, uh, you know, another, I'm going to name drop another book, which I, I just, I, w- I want to say rediscovered because it's an older book, but I, I, did, I just discovered it recently, so I didn't rediscover it. Um, the Experience Economy um, by Joseph Pine and James Gilmore was a book that was written in the late 90s, and they talk about how we've gone from you know, in our economy, selling goods to selling services. And now that's really not good enough anymore. We are selling experiences, and that's really what people want. 
Um, so, and he's writing from a business perspective. So he's telling, you know, for example, retail stores that they can't just sell their products and have good customer service. They have to create a, an experience, you know, like, you know, instead of having a teddy bear store, you would like have the build a bear workshop, you know, where you go and you actually build the bear and you have a memory there. So, um, you know, museums are perfectly built for that. So they just need to capitalize on it more. Well, I, and and I and I I yes, I read the book in the nineties, uh, and <laughs> yeah. uh, but but it's worth a reread, particularly uh, within a, a context of of where people are spending their money, and and of course there is sort of a sea change in uh, you, people your age and younger choosing to spend their money on going out to dinner or really great travel, uh, going on a, a wonderful vacation, seeing something new uh, as opposed to uh, buying furniture or a new car right. and so I do think that that plays out I, I think in answer to the question of, of also what what's one of the things that makes museums stand apart is uh, the opportunity for dialogue with with mm-hmm. other people uh, you could always find out the facts, but being able to share those facts with mm-hmm. others, and that's why I, I keep coming back to one of the things that I think was so fabulous about the programming that you're talking about is that sense to debrief. You know, you've created mm-hmm. a, a you've created a shared experience, and I can imagine that in all of the programs you've shared with us today, uh, students of all ages uh, can have some very meaningful, uh, deep, and surprising conversations that maybe they couldn't have had any other way. Have you found that? Yes, most definitely. Um, there's so many great. Stories. I, I don't know if we have time, but I can tell you one really quick one, my favorite one. Very quick, was, um, you got a minute. Okay, um, Julian Bond was the civil rights leader who started the lunch counter movement in Atlanta, and his grandson came on our uh, Fight for Your Rights tour and had, didn't know a whole lot about his grandfather's activity, just that he was a leader. But this little boy just completely took a leadership role in, um, you know, chanting, you know, the 14th Amendment gives us the right to be served and got his classmates chanting. It was amazing. And I feel like this kid, for the first time, understood the impact that his grandfather had. That is an extremely powerful story. Thanks, thank you for uh, for sharing that with us, Andrea. It you and I always have so much uh, fun. I learn so much from you every time we uh, we have a chance to get together. I'm glad w- that we had this opportunity to share it with a lot of listeners uh, today. It has been just great having you on the show. Yeah, I learn a lot from you too, Carol, and I hope you keep the show going. I will, and thank you, Andrea, because in truth, you were one of my first and earliest supporters. So, again, thank you very much. Uh, I will have another great guest next week, so I hope everyone tunes in. Remember, if you took the summer off, I didn't, so uh, make sure that you have an opportunity to listen to some of the podcasts from July and August. I I think I had some really great guests that uh, will stimulate your imagination and thoughts. Remember, too, that I love hearing from 
uh, listeners on uh, Twitter at, at MuseWrite and uh, on on email at carol.bossard at verizon.net. Let me know what you're thinking about these days, what, what uh, struggles you're having in thinking about museums and guests that you'd love to hear on the show, even if it's you. Uh, uh, I, that's one, the show gives us all voice, and, uh, and I am privileged to be able to provide that each week. Uh, so until next week, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.